Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 29. This is the word of the Lord. Please give it your full attention. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. But let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we come to you now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the strength and power of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we pray that you would give us grace this morning and strength. We pray that you would give aid to our ears and minds and hearts. That you would help us, Lord, to obey the commands that we will hear this morning. And that you and you alone will be glorified in what we hear and be glorified in how we obey. Lord, I decrease that you may increase. Be glorified in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please, saints, be seated this morning. Well, Ephesians chapter 4, and really even all of the book of Ephesians, is a very practical book, very highly theological book, but what we have read this morning is especially practical, and it discusses our lives uh, and what it means to live out our Christianity, uh, what it means to live out our identities in Christ. Living out our identity in Christ concerns our growing, our walking in practical holiness and obedience. It is living differently than the world, but specifically in our conduct is our, it is our conduct in relation to one another in the body of Christ. It is specifically Our identity in the body of Christ. Now, what I would like to discuss with you this morning was sparked last Lord's Day evening when we were walking through chapter 16 of our confession. Chapter 16, paragraph 2, which reads on good works. These good works done in the obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. And by them, believers manifest their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, and it is this last one that sparked what we will talk about this morning. Edify their brethren. Good works are done in obedience, and they edify the brethren. They are evidence of a true and lively faith. So, brothers and sisters, how do we live out our identity in Christ this morning in relationship to how we speak to one another? How does our speech, the speech that we have with one another, how does it glorify God? Is your speech, the speech that you have with those saints who you gather with Lord's Day after Lord's Day, is it edifying them is the speech that you bring to the saints lord's day after lord's day is it building up the saints or is it tearing them down is it building up the unity of the body of christ or is it tearing down the unity of the body of christ it seems today that hostile speech 
is at an all-time high in our day. Everywhere you look, social media, television, go to your local grocery store. There's constant political rhetoric, constant tribalization, your president, not my president, those right-wingers, those left-wingers. It's tribalization. It's also demonization of anyone who disagrees with your position. Everyone seems to be on edge. Everyone seems to be harsh, aggressive. Aggressive speech seems to be the norm of the day. And it has the potential to creep into the church if we leave it unchecked. God ha- God's word has much to say about the tongue. The power of the tongue and how we speak to one another. The Lord Jesus taught that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And therefore, a filthy mouth reveals a filthy heart. An aggressive mouth reveals an aggressive heart and so on and so on. This is one of the ways that we see into the hearts of people. Listen to them speak. You want to know who someone is? Let them talk for a little while and you'll find out who they are. We see into the heart by way of actions and speech. Actions often do not match the tongue and sometimes the tongue don't match the action, but both are necessary. The Lord Jesus said that we will give an account for every single Idle word. Even the words that you think are not important. Even the words that that you speak outside of a pulpit-like setting as I'm doing now. That you and I will be held accountable for every single word that we speak on the day of judgment. Every word. Every word, Lord. Every word. He's keeping account of every single word. Romans 3. The apostle quotes the psalmist saying... The tongue deceives. It's a mouth full of bitterness and cursing. It's the great evidence of our sinful depravity. The book of James likens the tongue to a world of unrighteousness. It's, the Bible says, a restless, a restless evil that profanes the whole body. The tongue is the tongue of fire. And it sets the whole world ablaze, our tongue. The tongue is a central theme in the book of Proverbs. And it is repeatedly taught that the tongue brings destruction. Evil mouths destroy. But the tongue of the wise brings healing and life. The big question that we have to wrestle with is this. What does this have to do with the gospel? Uh, What does our tongue and the gospel, what's the relationship between the two? In Ephesians, we are taught that we have been raised with Christ. That we have been joined to Christ. And we have also, because we have been joined to Christ, we have been joined to one another. We have been transformed into the new creation, the new people of God. Uh, When we gather together, we are the temple of God where the Spirit of God dwells. So then how do these things change, direct, and empower how we speak to one another? All the things that we've just said, in Christ, new creation, temple of God where the Spirit of God dwells. How does that change, direct, and empower how we speak to one another? How do we put off the old man of sin? And put on the new man, remade in true righteousness and holiness. How do we do that in relation to our speech? And how does the way that we speak to one another serve to strengthen or weaken the body of Christ? These are very important questions that that are addressed, I believe, in our passage this morning. Let us be clear, the Apostle Paul is not seeking behavior modification. That's not the goal. The goal is not behavior modification. 
Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, delivers these commands because they are consistent with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They flow out of the gospel. Therefore, if you are a believer, this should be the result of your faith in Christ. And this should flow out of your true faith in Christ, how we speak one to another. In Ephesians, Paul explains what God has done for us in Christ and what kind of lives are consistent with that faith in Christ and the work of Christ. So Paul is aiming at cultivating that virtue of the heart and aims at ver- at, at cultivating that God-centeredness, that others-centeredness among the believers. Love of God. And love for your neighbor. It's the hallmark of the Christian life. In this sense, what we see here is a call to stop using speech to get what we want. And to start using speech to serve our neighbor in order to give. That's what we see, I believe, in this passage today. Living out our identity in Christ and the use or with the use of the tongue. This morning I have just three points that I'd like to share with you. Number one, speech that gives. Speech that gives. And this is verse 29. Let's look at it again. Verse 29 of Ephesians chapter 4. Speech that gives. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for the Edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do you see those three? What we see here is the Christian pattern of holiness, not just abstaining from sin. If we were just encouraging you to stop sinning, we would be Pharisees. That's Phariseeism. Stop sinning. It's self-righteousness. Obedience is not just abstaining from the bad things. It's putting off those sinful things and putting on righteousness. It's putting off sin and putting on Christ. It's replacing wickedness with righteousness. We are to put off sinful speech and actively put on speech that edifies. You all just had Thanksgiving. We all just had Thanksgiving. You were among family. You were among friends. How much edifying speech did you hear? How much building up speech did you hear? Speech that gives grace. Did you hear any of that? Do you see, brothers and sisters, that our growth in holiness, it goes beyond personal devotions. Holiness is not your own personal devotion privately in God's word. It's not just your own personal time in prayer. It's not just your escaping from the world and being in solitude, away from sinful influences. Those things are good. Those things are necessary. But holiness in Scripture is almost always related to how we relate to one another and interact with each other. We can spend all day long reading the Bible in solitude. But if you're not practicing it among the brethren, it does you no good. It does you no good. You can spend all day long in prayer and fasting. But if there is no love and grace toward the brethren when you meet with them, it does it does you no good. Loving our neighbor is the fulfillment of the law. This is Paul's focus here. Growing in grace is communal. Loving God, loving your neighbor is the summary of all that God requires of us. And Paul zeroes in on our tongue. Loving God and loving our neighbor is the sum and substance of the law. It it, it summarizes what it means to follow Christ and Paul is, is zeroing it in on the way that we speak to one another. One aspect of loving one another is putting away I think I like the phrase, putting away harmful, abusive, sinful speech. Here the phrase is any unwholesome word. 
They are rotten words. They are filthy words. And the word is meant to, to be a metaphor for words that have a stench. Or stenchful words. It's a metaphor for a stench. Listen to this. That proceeds from someone's mouth. Shall I go any further as to what I mean by that? Or what God means by that? You have known those who you don't need to be too close to them to smell what's coming out of their mouths. It's foul. It's off-putting. It makes you want to ask them, would you like some gum? Don't you hate when they say, no, I'm fine. It's a metaphor for a stench that proceeds from the mouth. It's where we get the term foul language. It is like the psalmist whom Paul quotes in Romans 3 who says, the throat is an open grave. You've read the the phrase, haven't you? Over and over again. Their mouths are an open grave. It means the things that proceed from their mouth stink. The words that come out of their mouth is a deadly aroma. It reeks of sinfulness. It is a speech that brings a, a, a gag reflux because of the utter sinfulness that is proceeding from it. Saints, sinful speech should be repulsive to the believer. Not alluring to the believer. It should not be something, sinful speech should not be something that draws us in. But something that we are repulsed by. It's not just profanity, brothers and sisters. I I think that should be clear. It's not just saying a curse word. Which includes profanity. But it's not just a list of don't say the A word, the B word, the F word, the so on word. But any sorts of words that are harmful and destructive and divisive. Words that are associated with impurity. Ultimately, any words that have a self-serving purpose. They are stench-filled words. It's gossip. Gossip is foul language. It's using the tongue to tear down. That's stenchful language. It's degrading speech, putting someone down. That's stenchful language. It's hurtful, critical, demeaning, hateful, boastful, arrogant, coarse, harsh, dishonest, deceptive, uncaring, impatient, irritated, exasperated words. They are all foul language. Any word that is not fitting to the new creation that you and I are, to the new man that you and I are, but are rather characteristic of the old man, that's foul language. That's unwholesome. And we've become accustomed to being okay with that kind of language. And if you are a new creation in Christ, you cannot, you must not, you shall not Be okay with that kind of language. It's unwholesome, Paul says. When our words bring this foulness of odor, we do harm. Again, think of the imagery. When someone's breath is stenchful, it turns you off. You keep your distance. You don't draw near. You stay far away. And it's a funny example, but it's a true one. And it relates to our spiritual lives. When you are using foul language, language that tears down and does not build up, it causes people to want to stay away from you. We are called to put off these kinds of destructive speech. This kind of destructive speech. Again, it's not a list of words, but destructive words that are defined by comparing them to right speech. And what is right speech? I think that you might have noticed in, in that verse there, just the threefold criteria for right speech. Anything that does not meet this criteria falls into the language of foul, 
Our speech is ultimately <clears throat> to serve good, the good of and growth of our neighbor. I'm going to say that again. Our speech is ultimately to serve the good and the growth of our neighbor. And there's a threefold criterion. It's clear. Paul says only speech that is good for building up. There it is. Our words are to build up. They are to encourage one another. They are to affirm one another. They are to bring cheer, to bring comfort. They they are to further intimacy. They are to further love and unity with one another. Saints, do you walk away from conversations on the Lord's Day feeling like, like you've been built up because of the conversations you've had here? Do you walk away saying, I'm so glad I spoke to Doreen today or to Rose today or to Lucy or to Ralph today. They are such an encouragement. Are there only one or two people in the church that you can think of that are encouraging? And are you one of them if so? I said in the morning, one of the problems is that we've been raised in homes where we weren't encouraged very much. We've been raised in homes where uh, positive affirmation wasn't given very often. You're in very simple things. You're fast to little to little kids. You're smart to little kids. Very simple things. And because we weren't given that, we don't know how to give it. And when someone gives it to us, we don't know how to receive it. But you're the new creation. You cannot be handcuffed by the, the ways that you were treated or not treated when you were a child. You are a new creation in Christ. And we are called to build each other up in the most holy faith for the edification of the brethren. Are your conversations more about how bad you or someone else is doing on the Lord's day? Are your, or are your conversations edifying to the saints? Are you walking away from conversations encouraged to serve Christ more? Are you feeling weighed down? Are you talking to saints and saying, I think I'm going to stay away from that foul stench for a while? Are you someone that people want to be around because they are encouraged by the building up that you give? And sometimes we sit back and say, well, I'm waiting for someone to build me up. No, go build someone else up. I was just observing. I'd be careful how I say this. Observing Thanksgiving and around certain family members. Some people don't realize they're receiving what they're projecting. They are receiving what they're giving. You're giving an attitude, you're going to get an attitude. You're getting uh, irritated uh, ways, you're going to get irritated ways. You reap what you sow. You want to be encouraged, then encourage someone. You want to be built up, then build somebody up. Say what edifies your neighbor and nothing more. Only that which builds up. But not just that. In this threefold sense, Paul says, uh, Christian speech also fits the occasion. Or is according to the moment. That means it's a timely word of encouragement. You must therefore ask God to use wisdom and discernment to say the right thing at the right time. What's your timing like? Uh, do you know that you could say the right thing at the wrong time? Paul's not speaking about uh, being incon- insincere or being insincerely courteous. You know, like uh, those God bless you, Lord bless you. And it's, it's not really serious. It's not really sincere. He's not calling us to be fake. He's not calling us to put on a show where we don't want to say what needs to be said because it might hurt someone, not in the least. Sometimes edifying speech is a rebuke. Sometimes a correction or exhortion is a way to build someone up. Well, what guides us then? If I need to correct someone, if I need to exhort them or... uh, you know, rebuke them. What should guide me in that, that avenue? Timing. Is the moment appropriate? Would I correct someone in front of everyone if I have not first gone to them privately? The timing would be wrong, wouldn't it? 
Does the word fit the occasion? And it is, is it according to the moment? If you're married, you know that you can say a harmful thing and do so at the wrong time or say the right thing at the wrong time. My wife and I have this commitment to say only what is helpful, never what is hurtful. But to do so at the right time. If your your attitude is, I don't care about the time, I'm going to say what I feel, then you're being selfish. And you're not thinking about your loved one or your neighbor. You're only caring about yourself. You needed to hear this. But you will not be able to reach them when you're not showing a care and concern for them and maybe the timing of when you're saying what they need to hear. There's plenty of people that I wish were here this morning. I wish I could call them up and on the phone and say, hey, you need to hear this sermon this morning. But should I do it in front of all of you? So that you know who I'm speaking of? No, that'd be the wrong timing. Maybe my encouragement to them when I see them next will be, hey, we missed you last Lord's Day. Get a chance. Listen to last week's sermon. It could be helpful for you. It would be selfish if we just say what we want to say anytime we want to say it because we show a lack of care and concern for others. And as a Christian, you should be more other-centered than self-centered. If we are only focused on our perspective, what we think and what they need to hear, then we're missing the point of being a Christian. It's not about you. Uh, they have this saying in uh, real estate, uh, location, location, location. Well, in Christianity, our speech is often timing, timing, timing. Say what you need to say, but do it at the right time. And when you say what you need to say, do so in love. It's a practice that we can get better at, but it is part of godly speech. Loving speech is evaluating the occasion of your words. Saying the right thing at the wrong time is a sin against your neighbor. If we're discerning, we will be showing love for our neighbor. And we will be showing that we're more concerned about them than what we so desperately have to say to them so that they can get right. And some of us love to speak our minds. Some of us, are, uh, you would probably readily admit, I speak my mind. Let me say to you, that can be good at times. It's wonderful to have a, a mind that speaks, right? But all the time? If you speak your mind all the time, you'll learn that m- many people will find out that you need a renewed mind more than you realize. Our neighbor is to be at the forefront of our thinking. We must craft our words with foresight and intentionality. I'm going to think about how I'm going to say this. I'm going to say it with love. I'm going to say it at the right time. God, give me wisdom. This is how we love our brothers and sisters with our speech. Paul says that it is. it has to build up according to the moment. And the goal is to, thirdly, give grace. Isn't that wonderful? Give grace to the person who is hearing it. Uh, we often speak about the means of grace, the, the uh, word of God, the Lord's Supper, baptism and prayer. And they are the, the delivery systems that God has promised to bless us with as he helps us to grow in grace. But in a similar way, let me make this clear, not in the exact same way. Our speech is not a means of grace. But this shows the power of our words. Our words can be used as an instrument of grace towards others. So then it's a great responsibility that we have. The believer has a great responsibility. In Ephesians 4, we learn that the ministry of the word is ground zero for the growth and maturity of the body of Christ. And in another sense, our words play a role in this as well. If God's word is meant for the growth and maturity of the church, then as we are fellowshipping with one another, as we will do in just a few moments, as we are having conversations with one another, our conversations should serve to uplift and uphold the word of God that was spoken. Wasn't that a good word this morning? I believe that I need to work on this brother or sister. And if I haven't been an encouragement to you, please forgive me. Sometimes we might flip that. How did this, how did the word this morning affect you? Well, let me just tell you how it affected me. I need to grow in so many areas. You see, that that maybe opens the door for someone to say, yeah, me too. 
Here's some areas that I need to grow in. And then you can mutually encourage each other knowing that we both need to grow in a lot of different areas in the way that we speak. This means that we cannot be content with saying nothing. We've got to say something. I can remember that uh, when I was first saved as a 19-year-old young man, I believed that my brand of Christianity was going to be that I would go to church and that I would be stoic. I would be most silent. I would uh, distance myself from everyone. I wouldn't speak to anyone so that people might think about me. He's so spiritual. Look at him. He's just meditating over there. That's not spirituality. That's selfishness. In the church, we are to image God. And thankfully, God is a speaking God. Imagine if God was silent. If God did not, did not say a word to anyone anywhere ever, we would be lost. Uh, we would be without hope or direction apart from His revelation. We image God by speaking and the words that we speak should bring life and healing and salvation and grace. And in the same way, the, go- the gospel calls us to actively use our speech to give grace to those who hear. To actively find something good to say. When we think we have nothing good to say at all. And it is because whether you know it or not, your neighbor, your brother and sister, they need they need to hear something good. Some of some of you, some of us are just coming to church this morning and we just want some kind of encouragement, some kind of word, some kind of I'm glad you're here. I'm thankful for you. And again, we cannot wait for someone to encourage us. Because our neighbor may need it more than we realize and maybe more, even more than us. You see, when we sit back and think, I need to be encouraged, I need to be encouraged, I need someone to come and encourage me. You, you may need it, but, but you're being self-centered. Because there may be someone here who needs it even more than you. It's a central aspect of living out the Christian life and loving your neighbor. It's the central aspect of how the church is to build each other up in maturity. Each one of us have gifts to use in the body. And what do we use them for? To build up the body of Christ. And most often, speaking is involved. So then, new creation speech in accordance with our new identity as members in the body of Christ is to stop using our words for selfish things to get what we want To start using our words to serve others that we might help them grow in grace. Let's go to our second point then. Speech that is in step with the Spirit. This is verse 30 and 31. Speech that is in step with the Spirit. Do not, the Apostle says, grieve the Holy Spirit. You've heard that before. By whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. But let all bitterness, wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Brothers and sisters, sinful words do not just hurt people. The Apostle Paul says that they grieve God the Holy Spirit among us. That reminds us that the Holy Spirit is a person, and not an it. The Holy Spirit is a person. He is the third, co-equal, co-eternal person of the Holy Trinity. He's not a force. He's not a wind. Forces can't be grieved. Winds can't be grieved. When we sin against others with our speech, we need not ask for forgiveness to them alone. But we must ask for forgiveness to God, the Holy Spirit, whom we have grieved with our sinful speech. Our sin against others is a sin against God. Now, the million dollar question I'm sure that we're all asking is, what does it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit? We, of course, know that God, the Holy Spirit, being co-equal, co-eternal with the Father and the Son, here it is, is impassable. He is therefore, and therefore he does not have fluctuating, changing, 
varying emotions as created beings, you and I. He is God without passions. That is passions in the simple expression of the word. So then we must not conclude that when all is well, the Holy Spirit is happy. And when there is conflict, the Holy Spirit cries in grief. That's not what the Bible is teaching us. The body of Christ everywhere at all times is not in step with the Holy Spirit. And since this is true, the Holy Spirit would be in perpetual grief if he grieved in the way that we think the Holy Spirit is able to grieve. Not the case at all. God the Holy Spirit is infinitely and perfectly blessed in and of himself. So then grieving the Holy Spirit is a metaphor. It's an analogy. And it's a fitting analogy because it helps us to understand the seriousness of our words. Paul is quoting Isaiah chapter 63 and verse 10. And so therefore to understand Ephesians 4, we must understand Isaiah 63. In Isaiah 63, the prophet is recalling the exodus of Israel. Israel, after the exodus, rebelled against God. And they grieved the Holy Spirit. In this sense, Isaiah talks about how God redeemed Israel from the bondage of slavery. And how God gave Israel the angel of the Lord to fight for them. And how God gave and poured out His Spirit to guide them into the land of their inheritance. And yet, despite all of these wonderful gifts from God, they rebelled against God. They broke covenant. They were bitter in the wilderness. And so then Paul is applying this historical example to our situation. We too have experienced a redemption, haven't we? We too are a new and greater Israel. Who have, who have experienced a new and greater exodus. We have been released from the bondage of sin and Satan and death. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul frames his language using this imagery from the exodus in order to point us to Christ. In order to point us to our exodus in Christ. We've been given the angel of the Lord to fight for us, the Lord Jesus Christ. We too have the Spirit of God in our midst. He's leading us to an eternal inheritance, our ultimate inheritance. The new heavens and the new earth, our promised land. This is why Paul says here that the Spirit has sealed us for the day of redemption. To seal means to put His mark upon us. We have been branded for Christ. His name is upon us. We belong to Christ. We are called by the name, His name. And we've been sealed for those benefits that Christ has won for us. The benefits that we will receive on that final day of redemption. Faith, repentance, forgiveness, justification. All of these things are fully and finally ours. They are already and not yet ours. From the moment of our conversion, we are secure and they are secure in Christ. This is why in this passage, Paul is not threatening us with the loss of the Holy Spirit. I hope you notice that. Paul doesn't say, stop grieving the Holy Spirit or you're going to lose the Holy Spirit. We have been sealed to the day of redemption. Once you have been sealed, you cannot be unsealed. Once you are saved, you will always be saved. That's set in stone. But don't grieve the Holy Spirit. You will not lose your inheritance to the promised land. But don't grieve the Holy Spirit along the way. The Holy Spirit seals us for a purpose. For the day of redemption. That's the goal of our sealing. There's a progressive Sanctification, where we grow and grow for the final day. So then to grieve the Holy Spirit is to undermine, here it is, to undermine and fight the work of God in our midst. 
To grieve the Holy Spirit is to undermine and to fight against the work of the Holy Spirit in our midst. And one of the essential ways that we can do that is with our speech. Because speech hinders, it undermines the work of the Holy Spirit when it is sinful and divisive. When the Spirit is at work and it is being resisted, there is fatherly displeasure and it is an eternal disposition towards sin and rebellion. God is eternally grieved towards sin. God is eternally grieved toward uh, sin sinners who rebel against Him. God is eternally pleased with sin and sinners. That's why Paul calls us in Ephesians 4.2 to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Sinful speech, it hinders the work of the Spirit in our midst. We, we must keep in step with the Spirit. And we must do so with our speech to one another. We must align ourselves with His purposes. With His work among us. Paul tells us that this particular kind of divisive speech, this undermining speech, this uh, working against the Spirit speech, is first bitterness. Bitterness grieves the Holy Spirit. It hinders God's work in our midst. What is bitterness? But hidden resentment. Bitterness is hidden resentment. It is a resistance towards reconciliation. It's resisting peace. And it will destroy us. It will destroy the body of Christ from the inside out. We cannot permit bitterness in our midst. We can't tolerate it. It will destroy a church. And if you are harboring bitterness, if you are spreading bitterness, you do violence to the work of the Spirit of God in our midst, and you are a tool in Satan's hand for division. It will destroy a church, brothers and sisters. It will destroy a home, brothers and sisters. It will destroy a marriage, brothers and sisters. It will destroy a company, a team, you name it. Any type of gathering that is meant to be unified, it will be destroyed with bitterness. It's like drinking poison and hoping that the other person will die. It's holding on to something and not seeking reconciliation or peace. It's clinging on to to resentment with no peace and no desire for peace in sight. Put off bitterness, the apostle says. It grieves the Holy Spirit. Put off wrath, which is the next one. Bitterness, wrath. Put off wrath. Wrath is this, rather. It is passionate outburst of anger. It's an outburst. It is a loss of self-control. It's rage. We don't often see that, do we? We don't often see, thanks be to God, we don't often see wrath. But we often see the more refined version of it, don't we? The more refined version of it is anger. Wrath is is this bitterness that's been bottled up until it just explodes. It's like shaking a soda. Some of you kids know, your parents tell you, don't shake that soda. It's like shaking a soda uh, and and then opening up that soda and, and just... Sugary goodness all over the place. That's that's wrath. But there's a more settled kind of wrath. It's it's a more seething kind of low boil, and it's anger. The Lord Jesus said, "If you are angry with your brother, you are in danger of the judgment." It's animosity. Anger is. It's the person who will be avoided because you're angry with them. It's the call or text that's ignored because you're angry. It's the blocked number, the cold shoulder, the dirty look, the cold and short tone. And shall we go on? Anger. Anger is unbecoming of the people of God. It's not for the people of the book. Can you be righteously angry? Yes. How often, though, are you righteously angry? 
How often are you and I seeing the, the sinfulness of men and angry because of it? Oftentimes our anger is, is out of sin, not in re- response to sin, but because of our sin. Brothers and sisters, it hinders the work of God the Holy Spirit and He is displeased by anger in our midst. Clamoring is next. Clamoring is when you are angry and you want everyone to know it. It's when you are angry and bitter and you will, you want everyone in the whole church or wherever you may be to know that you've been hurt and that you are angry. Clamoring is the person in the restaurant who's unhappy with this service. Who raises their voice. If I don't get some water around here. Who raises their voice. I said no salt. I've been waiting 30 minutes for my dish. Clamoring is letting everyone know that you are uh, unsatisfied with the service that you are receiving. The poor waitresses running, doing their best. Poor waiter running, doing their best. But you're angry because your taters were cold. And you're going to let everyone know about it. But you see, that's often how we, not in this church, praise be to God, how we can act in church, though. Everyone's supposed to serve me. And when I'm not being served, then I'm going to clamor. I'm going to let everyone know that I'm not happy. That's selfish. I'm mad and I'm letting everyone know. Now everyone wants to know, why are you not happy? Oh, it's because of what that person did. Well, why did you do that? It's divisive. It will break down what God the Holy Spirit is attempting, is building up in the church, which is unity. This is why slander is next on the list. Slander is defaming. It's the person in the restaurant saying, and I'm going to tell everybody on Yelp, don't come here. Point, point one stars for you. You get nothing. I, I'm amazed there was a, a on our uh, Reformation Bible Church, if you look up our name, uh, there's five stars and then there's, there's one person whom I know, who's never been to this church, who decided to give us a one star. And it's because they but they disagree with the doctrines of grace. And they've never even been here. They've never even been here. It's slander for no good reason. And we are supposed to be the body of Christ. Slander is defaming. It's bringing someone's name and reputation down. It is dragging their name through the mud, as it were. That's my nephew looking for his daddy in Palmdale. We often drag people's name through the mud and we often do it behind their back. We rarely will speak to someone face to face about our qualms with them. The person who gave us the one star, he's right down the road. I'm right here. I would love to have a conversation. But it won't happen. Because some people can't be mature enough and Christ-like enough to just sit down and have a mature conversation and tell me why you believe what you believe. Let me understand you from your perspective. Slander is such a filthy, unhelpful way to speak in the church. We must never slander anyone in the church. Never. Sadly, most people don't know how to talk unless they're talking about somebody else. You know people like that? That 90% of their conversation is about other people. Their native language is gossip. They just don't know how to have a conversation about anything other than other people. That's a sad way to speak. Some people don't know what else to say unless they're talking about other people. I said this to the morning class in Sunday school. My wife and I have been binge watching Little People Big World for the past like three months, four months now. We're almost to the very end. And in the conversation we were having the other day, we found that we were slandering Amy. You don't know who Amy is, but she's the the small wife in the show. How could she just let him have the farm? Go take your buy out. And and my wife, being the wonderful woman that she is, I think we're gossiping about Amy a lot. I said, you know what? And I told the church this morning, I was digging. I would have kept on going. She put a stop to the digging. But yeah, slander is no good. It's not helpful. 
And we need to, we need to make it a habit to not allow it to be a part of our everyday speech. Not just in the church, but on, in our everyday speech. Which ultimately leads to malice. And malice is the summary of being mean-spirited. Malice is the summary of being mean-spirited. All of these are speech of the old man. The speech of the old man. There are some older people that you meet sometimes, right? That they get away with just talking crazy sometimes. They they say whatever they want to say. The past is, they're just old. They're just an old man. Just, you know, they, they, that should not be a pass for us because we are not the old man. But sometimes we can speak like as we, we were just the old man. We cannot. We should not. We must not. Why? Because this grieves the Holy Spirit. They all undermine his work in our midst. They are destructive to the family of Christ. No one likes conflict in their family. No one does. So we must avoid conflict of those kinds that divide at all cost. Put them off. And when we put them off, that's how we stay in step with the Spirit. We cooperate, we promote, we pursue God's work of sanctification and unity in our midst. And what is more, because we are sealed, marked by the Spirit, it's how we bear witness to a world that's watching that we belong to God, that we are not a part of the world. The church is the prototype of the new creation. The world should look in and see how we speak to one another. They should take note that this is what the new creation is like, and we should do the same. When we're here... Our speech to one another should be encouraging, should be building up. It should give us a foretaste of heaven. Uh, Your speech in the new creation will be absent of sin, absent of the flesh, the sinful flesh. It will always be encouraging. It will always be edifying. It, It will always be building up. That sound good. That sound encouraging to be in a creation, the new creation, where everyone is a believer and every word is edifying. Well, why wait? Why wait for then? Let's start now. Let's start now to build each other up in Christ. Let's start now to encourage one another in the Lord. It could be very simple things. That Thanksgiving. Guys, thanks for making the food. Mom, that was a wonderful turkey. You might have not have liked it, but it takes a lot of effort to make a turkey. I've never made one. But do you see how these simple things can be such an encouragement to people? Thank you guys for bringing the food today. Some of you guys. These are just simple things that go a long way. My wife taught me very early in our marriage, it's the little things, honey. I don't need the big, it's just the small things that go a long way. I'm still working on them. We are being brought into our heavenly home. And this should be motivation for us to walk by the Spirit. And how we speak to one another is a good beginning of that. Let's go to our last and and final element of this speech that imitates God. Verse 32 into uh, chapter 5. Let's read that together. Verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. uh, Chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Kindness. Tenderness. Forgiveness. They are all corresponding virtues in to the list of the sins that Paul has spoken about. Sinful speech. They're the opposite of those things. To be kind is to be gentle. Not abusive, not vengeful, not wrathful, but understanding. When was the last time you had a conversation with someone who had opposing views of you and you listened to them all the way through? You were kind to them. You showed Christian grace to them. Kindness is a willingness to yield. The scriptures teach that, that God is kind toward us, which leads to our repentance. We are to model God's kindness 
even when we are sinned against. Our kindness is to promote peace, which hopefully leads to repentance. To be tender-hearted is to show compassion and to show mercy, even when sinned against, especially by a sinner. But even more so, by a brother. You're my brother, I forgive you. You're a sinner in Christ, I forgive you because you're a sinner, but even more so for the brother in Christ. Why? Because you are my brother. You are my sister, I forgive you. Rather than having wrath and anger and clamoring, I'm going to sympathize with you because I'm one with you in Christ. It is to see... Tenderheartedness is to see things from the other person's perspective. Uh, to see it from their situation. To be long-suffering. It's to put yourself in their shoes. And it's not the moment where we sit back and go, yeah, see, put yourself in my shoes. It's, it's the moment where we should say, no, I, I need to put myself in your shoes. Because we are constantly only seeing things from one perspective. Do you know that's not very intelligent either? It's not very intelligent to just see things from one perspective. It's important for you to see things from all perspectives so that you can <clears throat> know both sides. There's always two sides to a story, always two perspectives. Try to see them both. That's what kindness does. It's what tenderness does. It's what mercy and compassion does. It's what God did when he sought us out. How? God came in our flesh. He stood in our shoes. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. We are to model this tender love. It requires forgiveness. Forgiveness is the opposite of bitterness. It's the opposite of malice. It's central to the Christian life. The Lord calls us to ask for forgiveness. But He also calls us to forgive those that have sinned against us. Forgive us as we have sinned against them. As they have sinned against us, forgive us. The Lord teaches us, and he taught in the parable that, of, the, of the unforgiving servant, that you cannot expect forgiveness if you withhold forgiveness. Paul says that we are to forgive as we have been forgiven. So then take inventory of the many ways that God has forgiven you in Christ. Think of all of the things. Go home. Make a list. Stop at a hundred. Of all the ways that you've been forgiven, all the things you've said or done or thought that God has forgiven you of in Christ Jesus. Freely. Fully. Without any stipulations. Repeatedly even. Though we continually sin. This is why we are not called to forgive uh, seven times 70, but seven times 70. Uh, we are not called to forgive seven, but seven times 70. Because God has been merciful to us. God models for us how we are to forgive one another. God makes the first move toward forgiveness, doesn't he? God doesn't wait for us to come to him or else we would have never come. God actively seeks us out. He seeks out reconciliation even when we refuse to come to Him. This is how we are to imitate God. In our forgiveness as the pattern of Christian life. We are to model the character of God as a direct result of being saved by the gospel. That's why we study God, brothers and sisters. That's why we, we are all to be theologians in a sense. We are to know the perfections of God. We are to know the, the ways of God, the word of God, because God guides us in this Christian walk. And he does so by giving us light and say, follow the light. Be imitators of Christ. Walk in the same way that Christ has walked. We imitate God by giving grace to our hearers. Building them up with our words. Just like his words to us that give us grace and build us up. Keep in step with the Holy Spirit. Pursue holiness. The unity and oneness of the body of Christ that he is accomplishing in our midst. Imitate God in his kindness toward us. Imitate his tenderheartedness toward us. Imitate God in his forgiveness toward us. Walk in love. 
pursue deeper knowledge of him. This is what Paul wants us to see. Look how God has treated you. Treat your neighbor the same. That's why he says in the very uh, verse two, walk in love. Love is the all encompassing reality of all these things. Walk in love. We speak kindly to one another because we love them. Speak words fitting of the moment because we love them. We speak tenderheartedly because we love them. We walk the same as Christ seeking to be a fragrant aroma to all people. Love is the fulfillment of the law, isn't it? Love God, love your neighbor. It's what it summarized. That's the summarization of being a Christian. We cannot claim to love God whom we have not seen and hate our brother whom we have seen. Jesus said, all men will know that you are my disciples when you have love for one another. It's continuous, a continuous direction of life. Walk in love. Just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for us and offering in a sacrifice of God as a fragrant aroma. Uh, One of the brothers, I won't say their name, Bless our brother Scott with Thanksgiving food. Our brother Scott was not able to meet with his family this year because of COVID. Our brother Scott is a single man who lives alone and who this year celebrated Thanksgiving alone. But love was shown to him. Simple gesture. Food being taken to him on Thanksgiving. That's walking in love. Can you think of some kind of act of love that you can do toward your neighbor? Well, what about toward your brother in Christ? Christ gave his life for us. And that's how we are to deal with one another. Give yourself for one another, for this pleases God. Give yourself in the way that Christ gave himself. It's the pattern of the Christian life. The cross is the pulpit of God that preaches God's love to the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And whosoever should believe in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The cross is that eminent, all encompassing reality that opens up for us the character, perfection and love of God and the pattern of Christian life. And what is it? It is to die to yourself. Why won't you show love to your neighbor the way that you know you should? Because you're not dying to yourself. Why won't you speak kindly to your neighbor in the way that you know you should? Because you're not dying to yourself. Why won't you give the things that you know you can readily and freely give? It's because we're not dying to ourselves. It's not just about having no hostility. It's about dying to ourselves. It's about living and giving our lives as living sacrifices. Will you join us this Saturday to go and preach the gospel for one hour at the hungry and homeless to pass out some food for one hour? Will you die to yourself to show love to your neighbor? Put off the old man, put on the new man, remade in true righteousness and holiness in Christ. It's not easy. Not by any means. And this sermon is not meant for our guilt or for our shame. Or to even make us feel like hypocrites. Shame and guilt, that may affect change for a time. But it doesn't last usually. Paul motivates us to put on speech not because of threats. Or because we'll somehow lose our salvation. Not possible. But it's simply this. Don't you want to build each other up in Christ? Don't you see that the Holy Spirit is among you? Leading you, accomplishing his purposes among you. Doesn't that motivate you to love one another? Don't you see that the day of redemption draws near? Shouldn't this motivate you to walk in holiness? Christ forgave. Christ uh, forgave all sin, all bitterness, all anger, all foul language on the cross. Don't you want to... Imitate Christ. Don't you want to become or walk like his children because you are his children? Our place in the family of God is secure. 
You're loved and accepted even with all of your and my flaws, sins and all. Shouldn't that be motivation to put away sin? Shouldn't that be motivation to put off old speech? Do you love the Father? Do you love the Son? Do you love the Holy Spirit who is affecting change among you? If you love Him, then follow Him. Keep in step with Him. Give your life for Him. For those who are made in His image, your brother and sister in Christ. Hard words, but they're meant to give us hope. And to die to ourselves in Christ. Let's pray.